welcome to The Philosopher's Nest. I'm Kyle Van Ostrom. And I'm Lewis Williams. The Philosopher's Nest is a podcast that showcases the work, insights, and experiences of graduate students in philosophy. This podcast is generously supported by the American Philosophical Association, the Faculty of Philosophy at the University of Oxford, and Lineker College, Oxford. Today, we're going to be joined by Darren Thomas, a PhD student at the University of St. Andrews. We'll be talking about her work, Farming in Montana, her recent Viva, and her work on the philosophy of work. If, after listening, you'd like to get in touch with Darren, you can send her an email at dmt8 at st-andrews.ac.uk. Darren Thomas, welcome to The Philosopher's Nest. Thank you so much. Excited to be here. So you spent some time working in other industries before coming or coming back to academic philosophy. Can you tell us about that journey? Yeah, so I've sort of been all over the place, which I think has contributed a lot to uh, my return to philosophy. Anyway, so after I graduated from undergrad, which I did in philosophy, I was really interested in doing agricultural education actually was my sort of initial interest. I really wanted to work on a farm and do uh, educational programs, teaching kids or teaching adults um, just about what they're putting in their bodies and, you know, how to be a little bit more connected to what they're eating. Um, And so I wanted to go work on a farm. When I graduated, I kind of missed the growing season that year. So uh, I ended up getting a job First, I was teaching reading classes, and then next, I went and worked for an educational, international education company, uh, which ran English-speaking schools in a couple countries in Africa, and eventually they expanded to India. And so I, I worked with them for a little while. I did curriculum work, learned a lot about how nonprofits work or don't work in that process. <laughs> but I eventually, the year after I, I worked for that education company, I did end up getting to go work on a farm. And that was out in Montana. It was an organic vegetable farm. And I really fell in love with work. I loved, I mean, as cliche as it sounds, like loved working with my hands, loved being outside every day. And for the first couple months that I did it, I was just absolutely in love with it. I felt like I had found my calling. Yeah. And so until about sort of halfway through the the first growing season, when I sort of hit this point, I think after I had finished, like it, it was the kind of natural conclusion of all of the kind of new stuff I was learning. A lot of you know, at the beginning, everything is 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 new and exciting, and and there's just a lot of stimulation because you're learning this this new field, some, you know, something you've never done before, and. I think that newness kind of came to its natural conclusion. I just very like quickly found myself extremely bored um, because farm work is extremely boring. It is very repetitive, very monotonous, and it's exhausting. You're out there for 10, 12 hours a day in any kind of weather and not being paid very much. I was living actually that summer. I lived in a tent with like a semi-functional like trailer that had a kitchen in it. Uh, and that was, that, those were basically all of my, all of my sort of living resources. So I think I, I sort of had this radical transition from like absolutely loving what I was doing to being bored out of my mind and kind of ha- hating it in a way, or just, just really like really struggling with the day to day. And 
that I think kind of triggered in me a return to my a return to philosophy, a return to kind of the methodology that I've been taught as an undergrad of thinking through well, why does it feel this way and and why why have I experienced this really radical transition from feeling like this is my vocation to loathing the day to day. I think in in trying to figure out how I was going to move on from that experience, um, I eventually decided to go back to grad school. But I really, really was fixated on answering these kinds of questions about the relationship that I had to my work and how I could be doing something that I both loved but also hated at the same time. Uh, I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah, that makes sense. It sounds like there was a lot of soul searching going on there. I mean, soul searching that took you back to academic philosophy, but I wonder if it was perhaps also soul searching that took you to where your research agenda now lies, which is the philosophy of work. So how much did those experiences that you had working on the farm bear on your on your current research? Oh, an enormous, to an enormous degree, I would say. I've always had a very sort of intense relationship with work. When I was younger, when I was a kid, when I was in undergrad, it was always my schoolwork because that was, you know, the primary kind of work that I was doing. I didn't realize until after I finished school that it was not just a relationship with schoolwork, but a relationship with uh, a certain being oriented towards a certain type of activity in a certain way for me. And that I derived a lot of my sense of purpose out of what I did for work um, or what I, what my primary work was. And so, yeah, I mean, working on the farm, I think was probably the biggest, uh, had the biggest influence on both coming back to academic philosophy and the research that I've done as an academic philosopher. But it certainly, there's certainly a lot of it that has, that came from my personal relationship to work before that. Right. We're definitely going to delve into the the philosophy of work, which is one of your which is your research interest. Before we get to that, I'll mention that you did your PhD at the University of St Andrews, which was my undergraduate institution, which is how we met, which is great. And you've passed probably the most important milestone there. Could you tell us about that milestone and precisely what that milestone consists of and what your experience was like? Yes, I can. I just passed my viva Woo! a couple of weeks ago. Yes. <laughs> I am extremely excited about. I have to say that I think as much as one can love doing a PhD and as much as one can love their PhD, I think everyone is just has a very, uh, there's a common experience of, of just getting to the end of being absolutely elated to be finished. Yes, I'm taking a taking a much needed sort of break and uh period of, of kind of reflection and, and celebration now, which is very nice. The other part of the question was what's involved in that? Yeah. Process. What's, it, what's, what's involved in that for the, uh, let's say the, the, the listener who doesn't know what a, what a Viva is and, and what your experience was like. Yeah. Well, I think something that's worth saying, I don't know if how many listeners we have in the U S or the UK, the process of doing a Viva, it can be very different um, in different places. So I was, as you said, at the university of St. Andrews, the way that we do it there is we have two examiners. One is an external examiner. One is an internal examiner, external being from another institution other than my own and internal being from St. Andrews. So a brief version of the process is just that 
you submit a final copy of your thesis, which I did in, in January. And then there's a period of a couple months of review while the examiners have a chance to read the work and come to a preliminary agreement or conclusion about the quality of the work and, and their assessment of it. But the Viva, you know, is a approximately two hour long meeting where you get to actually, I think you get to just chat about your work, which is kind of the fun part of it with two people who have expertise in your area, which, you know, sometimes you get to the end of a philosophy PhD and you actually haven't really had the opportunity to talk to many people who are specific to your area of, of research. So yeah, it was actually a lot of fun. Yeah, that's great to hear that it was um, more of a chatty, informal nature rather than the grilling that one may fear in a FIFA. But besides that point, was there anything that went differently to how you'd anticipated? Yeah, so I had a little bit of a funky hybrid situation. I had my external examiner was uh, a professor from an American university. Uh, that's Andrea Veltman. She does work on meaningful work. And my internal was um, a professor from St. Andrews. Uh, that was Liz Ashford. And so I think there was a little bit of maybe confusion, not confusion, but uh, I think just because it was a coming together of people who had experiences in different systems, it went a lot more quickly than I had expected. Also, I think it, it went, it was much more comfortable than I expected. I, I unsurprisingly was pretty anxious beforehand. I did have the chance to do it in person, which was really nice because uh, I, you know, during COVID, a lot of Vivas have gone online and I don't live in St. Andrews anymore. So um, it was actually very nice to get to do it in person with Andrea. But I think I was surprised to find that it was actually just, yeah, much more friendly and much more comfortable than I had expected. There was a formal element to it. I mean, the examiners had a number of questions that they wanted to discuss with me about the thesis um, and a, several sort of challenges and objections. But even in discussing challenges and objections, it just felt very much like a, a conversation rather than, as you said, a grilling. Mm. And I guess related to that, the fact they were able to find interesting challenges and objections or things for you to think about, I guess, suggests that they were interested in the, the nature of your work, right? Which is why I felt, you know, conversational. It's like, it's just like, there's, there's clearly some substance there if they were able to engage with it on that, on that nice level and, and also just press uh, stuff for you to think about in the future. In that vein, do you have any tips for people going into the Viva? Was there a sort of mindset you put yourself in? Did you have like a little ritual that like you were just like, I'm going to do this sort of thing? And that that gets me motivated for for this big thing because it's obviously it's a high stakes situation even even if it's conversational and chatty. What worked for you? Honestly, the thing that worked best for me was reminding myself or or trying to orient myself towards the meeting or towards the viva in an excited rather than an anxious way. So reorienting my emotional experience as being excitement rather than anxiety. I think I would also say just taking taking time to kind of remind yourself that you've done all the hard work already. And at this point, you know, going into the Viva is, is your opportunity to really be proud of what you've produced and kind of celebrate what you've accomplished um, because, you know, you, you are the expert on your thesis and no matter how closely your examiners have read it, you are going to know it better than, than they do. So reminding yourself to have that level of confidence in what you've produced 
I think also just just viewing it as an opportunity to really showcase what you've spent the last five years doing and to see it as something that's that's very exciting. Yeah, that sounds like a good idea. And obviously it works for you, you know, passing with no correction. So congratulations again on that. Can we refer to you as Dr. Thomas now? Is is that how this works? You absolutely can. Yes. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> absolutely. Well, moving on to the uh, topic of that research then. So this was the philosophy of work, which we've alluded to earlier, and you said how you you know came about thinking about that kind of topic with your previous work experiences. But it'd be good to hear a little bit about you know what the philosophy of work looks like rather than thinking about work in, in any other context. What is the philosophy of work? Well, it's a, certainly a pretty broad area, increasingly extremely uh, popular topic, both within philosophy of work and in public discourse nowadays. My thesis in particular focused on essentially making an argument that we have a society-based need for work. And there's Quite a bit in the academic literature, there has been quite a bit in the academic literature already on topics such as the right to work. That's a big area of the philosophy of work, at least contemporary philosophy of work. And also on work as a mechanism for goods acquisition. So talking about both good and bad work, but in the context of what we acquire through work. And in my thesis, I was interested in exploring, I think, an area that's been underexplored in this contemporary philosophy, which is about, first of all, answering the question of whether we have a need for work, but second of all, also looking at work through the lens of need and its relationship to our basic needs. That sounds really interesting. And and I heard you refer in your answer to a society-based need. I'm assuming that's different from like, I guess, uh, the needs that like individuals have maybe. So can you tell us like the difference between like a society-based need and individual need? And then, sorry, this is not a viva, but just, we're going to probe, we're going to probe. And then also tell us like what work is. I kind of feel like there's some questions that seem so obvious when you don't think about them. And then, you know, when they're exposed to the light of analysis, they just become so confusing or weird or inconsistent. So, so that was two questions. <laughs> It was. I'm going to start with the second one. Uh, So you actually might have to remind me of the first one when I go back to it. (laughs) But I absolutely, you're absolutely right that uh, work is especially a a concept which we, both philosophers and non-philosophers, utilize every day uh, without thinking about what we're actually referring to when we use it. And it was also, it's also one of the first questions that anybody ever asks me when I tell them that I wrote a thesis on the topic of work what is work? (laughs) So I think there is, of course, the colloquial, common sense, everyday way that we talk about work. And that tends to, for the most part, refer to employment or a job. I do think that's a culturally conditioned usage of work. So it's not a coincidence that that is our definition of work when we live in a, at least in Western society, a pretty work-centric culture, which places a lot of emphasis on productivity and your job and uh, what you do from nine to five. In thesis, I actually define work a little bit more broadly. So I thought it was important to include in a philosophical exploration of the concept types of work, which are not often included under the umbrella of employment or jobs. And so that is going to include unpaid work. It's also going to include a lot of voluntary activity. It's essentially going to include 
any types of activities which are um, productive or goal-oriented, which involve some kind of mental or physical exertion, but most importantly, which convey some kind of value beyond themselves. Um, so I talk about this in terms of economic, symbolic, or social value. So, you know, work can be activities that are paid for, but they can also be activities that we socially recognize as valuable. Maybe caregiving could be an example of that. Uh, parenting might be another one, although parenting is kind of an interesting one because it sort of sits in the, the gray area between work and other activities. But the other type of value I talk about is symbolically value, valuable. So, you know, work can also be activity which has some kind of personal significance. And what I was trying to capture with this is that what counts as work changes over time and also, you know, even within a, a, a culture, it can often depend on the way that a person is oriented towards that activity. So one person's work can be another person's leisure or hobby, but that was important for me uh, to be able to capture in a definition. Okay, so yes, to answer your first question, which is about the, the difference between society-based and individually-based need for work, the way I was thinking about it in the thesis is often when we ask when the question of whether we need to work is asked, it's usually thought of or considered in relation to uh, whether I myself have some kind of inherent need to work or whether I need to work because the relationship that I have between the, you know, myself and the products of work is a kind of necessary uh, relationship. And that's typically how the need to work has been treated even in, in philosophy, uh, which attempts to answer it. The way I think about it in thesis is that there are other ways we can ask this question of whether we need to work. So, you know, one way is to ask it in relation in, in relation to in the context of my individual relationship to work. But we can also ask it in relation or in the context of its relationship to our needs, to the needs that we hold as members of community or members of society. So it might not be the case that I myself have an inherent need to work, but I do need others in my society to do it. Or I, I need others to work in order to produce the you know material resources that I need to survive. Even though I don't need to do it, there can be other ways uh, in which other needs in which that, that need is, is grounded. So in thesis, I argue that while we there is no sort of fundamental need at an individual or even a community level necessarily, uh, I think that we can argue that there is a kind of society-based need. And this need for work is grounded in the signaling function that work fulfills. This is just what I call it in the thesis, but it, I essentially mean that work functions as a way to signal to others what our role is in society or what we're contributing to society. And this is really important because societies, for the most part, seem to be founded on at least some form of reciprocity or, or have some kind of norms uh, about governing how people contribute to society. Um, and on a, you know, speaking on a very abstract level here, but you know, it's important in a, in a society to be able to govern and manage how different members contribute to shared resources or even if it's not physical resources, it can be shared values and it's important to be able to 
kind of have a language to communicate this, to be able to talk to other members about who's contributing, and then what what sorts of rewards or recognitions that's a, you know as a society we want to attach to contribution. So that's essentially how I, I ground a need for work in that society-based need we have, that we have for essentially a mechanism which allows us to signal to others uh, what our role is in society, to be able to understand what others' role is in that shared society, and to be able to communicate about what I call a sense of common fate, which is essentially a, a sense of a shared social project that we are doing something together as, as a sort of cohesive whole, uh, that we have shared aims or shared interests as a cohesive society. Yeah, I like this distinction between the individual and the societal need for work, as it were. Uh, I mean, if I'm understanding the relationship right, I, I guess you're not arguing that these are mutually exclusive, certainly not, but rather that a lot of attention has been paid to this individual need, but maybe not quite so much to this societal need. And, and I wonder if maybe one upshot of this societal need for work, one area where this could be of particular importance, is if we were able to move towards something like universal basic income, if this were to eliminate or at least reduce the individual need for work, well, we would still have this societal need for work that you're talking about. So is this something that you've spent time thinking about in your thesis? Is the thought that, you know, even if we can, as I say, reduce or even get rid of this individual need for work, there's still going to be the societal need for work? So yes, I do spend a little bit of my final chapter thinking about uh, UBI and how the central thesis of the dissertation relates to UBI. But I think more generally, what I'll say in, in, in answer to this is that thinking about a society-based need for work does point us towards thinking about, certainly thinking about social policy in a way that's broader than just valuing work as a way for the individual to acquire you know, material goods or concrete resources or a salary. So in, in the case that and, and I do talk a little bit about, uh, I do spend a chapter on anti-work arguments. So this is this comes up in relation to that as well. But I think what's important about my social account of a need for work is that even in the case that we implemented UBI and offered people who don't have access to work a way to sec- still secure their material goods or or basic resources that they need to live. There still exists a need to perhaps pursue social policy, which is oriented towards ensuring a more fair distribution of work, ensuring that people actually do have access to work. Because what I'm showing is that work is not just about acquiring these material goods or concrete resources, but it's also about signaling our social role to others. And we can still have access to material goods and and concrete resources, but if we fail to meet that need for having a mechanism that allows us to signal to others, um, we're going to be missing a really important need. And it's not clear that there are other ways we can meet it. Well, that's a great answer to that question. And I suppose just reveals that the philosophy of work is as practical as work. So (laughs) Darren, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Philosopher's Nest. You can find our website at www.philosophersnest.com. And if you're a graduate philosophy student who might like to come on and join us for an episode, 
feel free to reach out to us at thephilosophersnest at gmail.com.